Welcome to the Pregnancy Help Podcast. I'm Christine Grimmett, and I'm joined by Tracy Shellhouse. She's the Vice President of Ministry Services here at Heartbeat International. And we'll be talking about uh, pro-life apologetics and answering some of those tough questions. And so we're excited to bring in Mark Newman into this conversation. He's the president of Speaker for Life, and he's been in the pro-life movement for over 30 years. He's dedicated to equipping pro-life advocates nationwide with public speaking skills, and he has a background in teaching speech and debate at universities. And so it's really awesome to see how he is teaching the pro-life world how to keep that conversation moving and how to engage pastors and communities on pro-life topics. Before we get started, I'd like to remind our listeners that Option Line is one of those ways that the pro-life movement stands ready to help women in need 24 hours a day, seven days a week, helping to answer those pregnancy-related questions through phone, chat, text, and email, and then direct those women to their local pregnancy help organization so that they can get the care that they need. Help is ready at optionline.org, or if you're a pregnancy help organization and you're looking to partner with Option Line, maybe have them answer your after-hours phone calls, um, email info at optionline.org for more information. So welcome, Tracy and Mark. It's so good to have both of you here, and I'll turn things over to you. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christine. Well, Mark, thank you for joining us and being with us on the podcast. Um, this is an interesting time of year. It's Sanctity of Human Life Month, and um, post-stops, it seems to be transitioning and changing a little bit. But it is still such an important time to come back and look at the sanctity of human life, hold it high, and then also equip our community to be able to do the same. And that's one of the reasons I ask you if you do this podcast with us. Um, you're going to be doing an in-depth day at our upcoming conference uh, in Salt Lake City this year. And your in-depth day will unpack um, so much and so much further uh, what we're talking about today uh, than we will be able to do during this podcast. But one of the unique things about the um, the in-depth day you're doing, too, in a post-dog or in a post-pro world is looking at how to engage pastors and how we can equip the body of Christ to be voices for life. And I think that is is so powerful. And um, and so I wanted to have you on. Let's talk a bit about um, pastors engaging the church and uh, your passion. And so, as Chrissy mentioned, you've been in the movement for more than three decades. And yeah. I, I personally know you as a friend and someone that I know is a friend for pregnancy help because you and I, over the years when I was a CEO, worked together and you did a lot of great things for my community and some of them even on your dime uh, because you believe so strongly in what you're doing. Um, and if you don't mind, just share a little bit about your passion and then we'll jump into this. I got started in the pro-life movement uh, a long time ago. I started, I was just the director of speech and debate at the University of California at Irvine. Didn't know anything at all about abortion. Didn't know anything about the pregnancy health movement. Didn't even know it existed. Uh, and then a associate pastor of mine uh, took one year's leave of absence to become the uh, director of this weird thing called a crisis pregnancy center, which is what they used to call them back in the day. And uh, asked me to come out and train his people. And I said, well, sure, I can come out and you know, teach your people platform speaking skills, but I don't know anything about your your industry. Can you just send me some material? And he did. And it was a massive eye-opener for me. And I would say probably within a year and a half, about 90% of all of the extracurricular training work that I was doing, you know, outside of the classroom, was working with pregnancy centers and folks from various uh, political parts of this community. So National Right to Life and 
uh, their affiliates, uh, Americans United, you know, all those folks. And, uh, but I'd still say probably 80% even of that was probably pregnancy help organizations. That's where my heart's kind of always been since the very beginning. My kids were folding newsletters at our local pregnancy center, you know, as soon as they could, you know, physically do it. Um, we, we've been involved for a real, real long time because we recognize that all human lives have value. And it, it seems almost incomprehensible to me that we live in a nation that can't recognize that, even though all of the scientific and moral arguments point in that direction. Well, you know, Mark, something that I find really interesting in what you just shared is the way you got involved and became aware of the pregnancy help movement was by having someone reach out to you and say, hey, will you come train us? Will you teach us how to speak? Will you teach us how to share the truth of this? And yet we have so many now that have the platform and are not using it. They're not speaking up. And um, and there's probably lots of reasons as to why we have some churches um, and pastors who are pro-life. They do believe in the sanctity of human life, but they're not being voices for life. Um, so I know that you do a lot of training. You train a lot of speakers. You train uh, those in the movement that are working in pregnancy help to speak. Uh, some pregnancy centers that I've been with in the past, and you can even come and talk with pastors. But what have you seen? Why is it that some pastors in the sanctity of human life don't speak up? They don't seem to have a voice in that realm. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. But before we get too deeply into it, I, I need to recognize, you know, I, I get it. When I go to talk to pastors, I don't sit around and bash pastors. And I think it's really important that we not do that. And I know that is not your intent at all. But I think there are a lot of people out there who are kind of uh, you know, waving pitchforks and torches, wondering why the church isn't doing it. I always tell pastors, I, you know, I get it. In modern day America, what most pastors are uh, are required to be in order to be a pastor, you've got to be a spellbinding public speaker. You've got to be a moral philosopher. You've got to be a biblical exegete. You know, being able to you know bring all the treasures out of the scriptures. Um, you've got to uh, you know understand popular culture so well that you can ferret out all the worldviews and the you know popular you know films and and then talk about them. You've got to understand music. Oh, you also have to be a biologist, a geologist, an astrophysicist. You know, you're supposed to have literally the answers for everything. And the Internet is populated by millions of people who have as their one job to focus on one narrow area and attack the church. And you are supposed to be the person who's got the answer to all of them. And so when we come in and say, hey, um, how come you're not talking about this? I think to a lot of pastors, it feels like we are just putting another brick on their load. And, uh, and so that, that's one of the things I let them know. You know, I, I get it, but I try to explain to most pastors is that abortion is not like these other issues that are floating out there, right? Pastors think that every 501c3 just wants time in their pulpit. Uh, I tell them this, this isn't like that. Abortion's not like those other issues. When people get it wrong on abortion, human beings die and other human beings are scarred. So I've identified what I think are are eight reasons why most pastors don't talk about abortion from the pulpit. Um, six of them I refer to as spoken. Two of them are unspoken. The first one is, you know, there's some pastors out there that don't think that abortion is sinful at all. As a matter of fact, there's research out there that demonstrates that at some churches, the pastor, the pastoral staff will drive a woman down to an abortion clinic. So that happens. Now, for most of the people I speak to, that would not be the case. But we need to understand that there is a large contingent, uh, uh, particularly in the American mainstream churches, that they don't have a problem with abortion uh, one bit. In matter, as a matter of fact, they've got pastors, you know, Planned Parenthood's got their own, um, their own clergy staff that goes out and performs blessings on abortion facilities. 
So uh, that's one reason. The other ones are things like, oh, it's just too political. You know, we, we only preach about the gospel here. We don't talk about anything that's politics. Uh, it's too divisive. If I talk about it, it's going to divide my people up into camps. Uh, if I talk about it, I know I've got post-aborted women in my congregation. If I talk about abortion, it's going to hurt my congregants. Uh, some people say, you know, it's just unnecessary uh, because, you know, I'm just so good from the pulpit that uh, none of my people ever even get pregnant outside of wedlock. Uh, I, you'd be surprised to believe that there are some pastors who really think that. And then uh, another one is, is there, it's a checkbox thing. You know, well, I already preached about abortion. Well, yeah, you know, four or five years ago. Um, so these are the unspoken uh, or, or the spoken reasons. These are things I've actually heard pastors say. Then there are a couple of unspoken reasons, and one of them is ignorance. And that relates a little bit to how we open this whole thing up. Um, pastors are supposed to be the subject matter experts on virtually everything. They are not the subject matter expert on abortion. Um, they're afraid to talk about abortion. The vast majority of them are men, and therefore they have been told by their culture that since you don't have a uterus, you don't get an opinion, so you have to butt out, stay out of the issue. Um, and they've also been told, I think, by the other side that uh, this is a very complex issue. It's very, very hard to understand. And, I, of course, I recognize that that's complete and utter hogwash. It's not a hard issue to understand, and it's not a, not a difficult issue to discuss. As a matter of fact, I can usually, uh, in three hours at an apologetics class, I can equip everybody in the room to be able to respond to this issue. I've got a 250-page book that if they just read it and kept it up on their shelf, they would uh, know enough to be able to speak intelligently on this issue and shut down 99.9% of the arguments that they would ever encounter unless they were you know, dealing with a professional moral philosopher, in which case we might have to go a little deeper. And then the final reason, I, and this is something very few people talk about, is that we have a lot of pastors, I'm sure, who have abortion in their background. And what I mean by that is they've either helped somebody to obtain an abortion, or perhaps in their younger years, um, they actually had an abortion or helped uh, helped a girlfriend uh, or, or even possibly a fiancé uh, get an abortion. And I've heard these stories also uh, from pastors, and a lot of times they feel like by preaching on abortion, they'll, they'll be hypocritical. So the, the response to all this is really pretty simple. Abortion is a sin. Even a cursory look at the scriptures will demonstrate this. Uh, it's a it's primarily a spiritual issue. It goes all the way back to child sacrifice. And we are literally sacrificing children today for the exact same reason people have been sacrificing children since time immemorial. And we have to be able to express it that way. And I think any deep dive into something like Molech worship, for example, will have, help pastors to understand that. Abortion is not primarily a political issue. It's primarily a spiritual and moral issue, um, and it's primarily an action. In other words, it's not it's not an idea. It's something some, something that people do. But our opponents try to cast it as a political issue specifically to get pastors to not talk about it. And I tell pastors that if they will buy into that game, the idea that they let the enemy of their congregants' souls set the table for them and then tell them that you know, they don't have a seat there, um, after a while, the only thing they're going to be able to preach about are agricultural metaphors. Um, the idea that it's too divisive, of course, it's divisive. All truth is divisive. It's the nature of truth to be divisive. When you say something is true, you immediately identify people who will embrace and obey the truth and people who will reject and disobey the truth. And so no matter what you preach about, it's going to divide your congregation in some way. The job of the pastor is to shepherd their people to good decisions and help to conform them to the image of Christ. The idea that it's going to hurt their congregants, their congregants are already hurt, right? I mean, there is so many women, based on which stats you look at, up to 57% of all women who've had abortions to some degree identify with the church. 
the LifeWay stat was that 40% of women who had abortions um, were in church within the month previous to the time that they'd had their abortion. Um, and so we, we have a lot of women and men, by the way, this is what something people frequently ignore, uh, women and men who have a an experience of abortion in their past. And so the deal is not talking about it hurts their congregants because it tells them that either it's no big deal when in their heart they know it is a big deal, or it tells them that, you know, is uh, sort of unconsciously that this is that topic that's so horrible, God can't even forgive it. So why even bother talking about it? And so we leave these people in bondage by speaking about it. We free these people up. We help them to receive the forgiveness, the healing and the restoration that only comes through the shed blood of Jesus after confession and repentance. And I, I do want to make a note here before I get to this last couple issues. If you are listening to this podcast right now and you have abortion in your past, it does not have to define you. There is forgiveness and healing and restoration available to you. There's not a single sin that anybody in this listening audience has ever committed that is beyond the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to heal. So I, I really want to encourage you, if this is part of your background, to go and 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 find somebody to talk to at your church, at a uh, pregnancy help organization, and find that healing that you so desperately need. Um, some people, some pastors will say, you know, well, you know, uh, well, I guess, uh, you know, that it's, you know, uh, it's going to, it's unnecessary, right? Because I, I'm so good for the platform. But I mean, if you've seen the research that's out there, most of the people, um, most of the researchers that are out there will tell you that a lot of kids in our churches are sexually active and we really do need to be telling them this. And even if they weren't, they've got friends who are. And they need to understand the abortion industry has painted a target on the back of everybody of childbearing age to try to convince them that abortion is the best way to solve uh, for an untimely pregnancy. And that's why we have to do it. Even if you think that you're so good, it's unnecessary. It's still impacting the lives of your congregants outside. Um, that you've already spoken about abortion. I always tell people, you know, how often do they offer English 100 at a college? And I'm going to tell you, they offer it every single semester. Do you want to know why? Because there's always new students coming in every single semester. So we have to be able to continue reminding our own people and then introducing new people to the truth about the fact that they are fearfully and wonderfully made from the moment of conception uh, and that God uh, is, their, their, lives has, their lives have value from the moment of their conception um, and not only until their natural death, but beyond, because of course we also want to care for their spiritual lives. Um, the best way to get around the problem of, uh, of ignorance is to study. And I always tell pastors, that's largely what they're paid to do is to study and prepare messages for their congregation. And it's not hard to overcome that ignorance. All you have to do is read a little bit. And then uh, if you've got abortion in your background, pastors, I, I can only encourage you to do the exact same thing I told you, told everybody else listening to this podcast to do. If you feel too, uh, it's too sensitive to do it in your, in your own town, great. Drive 35 miles away, be anonymous, and go in and get through the counseling and the Bible study uh, that you need in order to see your way to the other side. I think a lot of people think, well, I asked Jesus for forgiveness and now I'm okay. But anybody who's been through something like forgiveness at free, surrendering the secret, or some of these other Bible studies that are out there know that there's a little bit more to it than that. And uh, and you need to really find true freedom. And that's just going to happen uh, as a result of the healing process uh, that we experience when we confess and repent. And then God kind of walks us through that season of our lives. Well, thank you. And you said so many great things in such a short period of time. We could take and unpack many of those and have uh, multiple podcasts just exploring some of those concepts. 
a couple of the things that you said that I thought were um, key and also very interesting is when, and I've heard this from pastors, well, we just, we just preach the gospel and they, they don't, they say, well, you know, we don't get on topics. We're just preaching the gospel. And the thing is though, is abortion uh, is not, as you mentioned, it's not a political issue. It's a heart issue and it is a gospel issue. And it, if you are preaching the gospel of life, it's important that we understand that we are preaching the gospel um, and the opportunity for all. Um, and and so to me, I think that abortion um, and the sanctity of life is definitely a gospel issue. It's a gospel of life issue. Well, there's and, two things there, Tracy. One of them is, you know, for, for many women and, and men in America, the greatest barrier between them and the cross of Jesus Christ is the body of their unborn child. They, they don't they don't know how to, to get around it. They just think it's something so horrible it can't be amended. And so when we don't talk about it from the pulpit, we actually solidify that idea. Number two, in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples. And yeah, he says baptize them, but he also says to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so if we look through the scriptures and we see God's uh, what, what God has to say about things like child sacrifice to Molech, and we recognize that the same processes, procedures, and motivations exist in modern-day abortion as existed in Old Testament Molech worship, then if we are to do as the Apostle John says, which is to keep our little children from idols, right? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Um, these are the kinds of things he would be talking about. We don't want people to be engaging in ungodly child sacrifice, and we have to start talking about it that way. Absolutely. And something else you mentioned when you're talking about um, pastors being afraid to speak because they're afraid that they're going to offend someone or that someone is going to feel hurt or judged. I think it's also important to understand that there is an aspect of prevention in preaching the gospel. And and so the preventative part is there are also people sitting in our churches that haven't had abortions. But if they are not aware of the truth about abortion, they may, they may just, even though I know that the law is written on our heart, it's so easy for man to justify and rationalize our decisions. But when we know the truth, when we have the clear truth laid out before us, it's a lot harder for us to do that. And so not speaking to the issues of abortion, those that are post-abortive, those that are hurting, and the pain that abortion causes and the sinfulness of abortion actually leaves this big void for those that are still growing and maturing. And I imagine it would be it would be like if today, now that we understand the dangers of tobacco, it would be like us today still saying nothing about cancer, nothing about lung cancer, the the you know the horrible outcome that tobacco can have on our physical bodies, and just hoping that those that are young are going to look around on their own without ever being told and be able to put two and two together as those that are older are suffering the effects of it and realize at a young age, oh, that's not something I want to do. Um, I think it's very important that we speak to those things and um, we address them. And so I think the gospel of life um, very much encompasses talking about the preventative things, talking about the things to come and also the restoration of redemption of the things of the past where he reconciles those things. So for those though, that often don't want to mention abortion because they're saying, well, isn't it political? Or maybe they just, as you mentioned, they don't, they're not educated enough. They don't know the answers to the questions and they're afraid that they're going to get strung out 
and they're going to get over a barrel <laughs> and they're not going to have a good answer. Um, you know, some of the things that come to mind that I know that I have heard in arguments, even as I've done some debate and presentations is, but, but, you know, abortion is a human's ro- human rights issue. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a liberty issue. Um, shouldn't women have the right to choose? What is your response to that? Well, it's the same kind of thing when people say that, uh, that abortion is a healthcare issue. And my response is that abortion uh, is healthcare in the same way that human slavery is asset management. In other words, what you're doing is you're taking other human beings out of the equation and only looking at it from your own personal perspective. Um, and I, before I get too deeply into that, I want to comment briefly on what you just mentioned, which is a lot of pastors don't understand that abortion for most women is not something you don't have 18 year old girls sitting around all day going, gosh, you know, if I were to get pregnant, you know, I'd just have an abortion. I'm going to go find out more about this little abortion thing because, you know, I might want to have one sometime in the future. Abortion for most women and for most men is an impulse buy. And so if they are not carefully grounded in the truth long before the event occurs where they become pregnant, then that's where people get in a lot of trouble. So one of our jobs as uh, people who, who teach and preach the gospel is to ground our people in the truth so that when something uh, unfortunate, you know, and we, I call them untimely pregnancies. I hate the idea of unplanned pregnancies because, frankly, I think the vast majority of pregnancies are unplanned. Uh, but they're untimely, not at a good time for that woman, she thinks, to be pregnant. And so that's when the abortion industry swoops in and says, oh, we can solve your problem right now. Make a decision. Give us your money. You know, go down the hall. Have an abortion. Take these pills. Um, we have to ground our people so they know what is true uh, up front. But no, there are people out there saying, well, it's, it's a, it's a woman's rights issue. It's a healthcare issue. And my response is always, okay, I'm sorry, what's a healthcare issue? Abortion. Okay. What exactly is an abortion? And as soon as people define what an abortion really is, not the kind of way that Planned Parenthood defines it, right? We're gently removing the pregnancy tissue out of your uterus, which is what Planned Parenthood's website says. Um, but recognize the, uh, the presence of another human being, and abortion is the thing you are going to do to that other human being in order to apparently get some kind of right over here. So we've got to not forget about the human being that sits in the middle of all of that. And that's what our opponents would greatly like us to do, is to act as if that human being doesn't exist, when the fact is is that science, uh, science knows that it exists. Planned Parenthood used to teach that that human being exists. And I do find it really funny when I, I do give out some of these pieces of evidence. Maybe we'll get to them here in, in a second. People will say, yeah, but that evidence is really old. It's from 1951. And my response is, well, this is what they used to teach to people as a medical fact, right? This is a scientific fact. So what new science came along? What new information did we get about the nature of the unborn that would cause them to move off of that position? I'm sorry, can I just jump into that part right now? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so I'm holding in my hands, and I, we don't have, we're not videoing this, so you, you can't see it, but I'm holding in my hands two different brochures. Both of them um, were distributed by Planned Parenthood. One of them is all the way from 1951 called The Gift of Life, and in it, they say really clearly, if one of the male sperm meets and unites with an egg cell, a new life begins, and this was distributed by the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, and this is what they taught everybody in 1951, right? When does human life begin? When a, a man's sperm and a woman's egg meet. That's when it happens. 
And then uh, in 1963 or early, we're not really sure on the date of this. The only thing I know is that the, um, the address on the back of the brochure does not have a zip code. So zip codes were introduced in 1963. We know it was before then. This is a brochure called Plan Your Children for Health and Happiness. It's a question and answer format about birth control. They ask the question, birth control, is it an abortion? The answer is definitely not. An abortion kills the life of a baby after it has begun. It is dangerous to your life and health. It may make you sterile so that when you want a child, you cannot have it. This is what Planned Parenthood taught everybody prior to 1970. Now, in case you're wondering if these ideas are out of date, um, more Prasad and Torsha in the latest edition of their longstanding textbook, um, the, the Developing Human Clinically Oriented Embryology, this has been in multiple editions now, they describe when human life begins. And they say, human development begins at fertilization when a sperm fuses with an oocyte, an egg, to form a single cell, the zygote, this highly specialized, codipotent cell capable of giving rise to any cell type, marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. So that's what that's what modern-day embryology teaches in medical schools, and it reflects what Planned Parenthood used to teach but now obscures, used to teach back in 1951 and the 1960s. So the fact of the matter is the scientific evidence is clear. It's, it's not my opinion. It's not my perspective. It's a scientific fact that human life begins at conception. But where we get into difficulties, uh, Tracy, as I know you know, is that people will say, oh, I know it's a human being. But it's not like it's a person or anything. And sometimes some people will even say, even though I agree it's a human being, and even though I agree that it's a person, I don't want one. And so I should be able to get rid of it if I want to. And it's hard, I think, when we talk about these kinds of issues to imagine that there are people who would recognize that this is a person and I should be able to do what I want with them. But I'll tell you, when you get to, when you realize the shallowness of that argument and the fact that they, they themselves don't really believe it, is if you replace the unborn child with a born child. Oh, so it's going to be economically difficult for you to have this child right now. But what if you had a one-year-old right now and suddenly you lost your job and things were equally economically difficult? Should you be allowed to put your one-year-old child to death? And people, God willing, will universally say no. Uh, I think it was Philip K. Dick. Uh, he was the guy who wrote uh, Total Recall, Minority Report. He wrote a story right after the Roe versus Wade decision. He talked about uh, the abortion truck and how the abortion truck would come around in the neighborhoods and it would. Sn- it, and if a parent didn't want their kid all the way up to the age of twelve, they set a standard for what made you a human being, and that was the ability to perform higher math. And they figured that that happened about twelve, so they could come around and collect the kids up. And it's a harrowing uh, short story. Uh, but which you can look up and Google and, and, and read. And really, when you think about it, there's no reason why that shouldn't be true. If we aren't going to have a clear, bright line distinction about when human life begins, then any other uh, point is just arbitrarily chosen. And so, yeah, right now, most people will agree that it's at birth, but we've even seen laws now where politicians aren't even willing to step up and guarantee life even at birth. And I've got articles over here from Jablini and Minerva that's arguing for any time past pregnancy without any definite date, you should be able to to, uh, dispose of your children. And even when you talk to people, and this is going to get a little far afield here, but talk to people about the creation of things like artificial wombs. There is there's ethics research out there that indicates that there are people who will say, no, the point is not 
to not be pregnant. The point is to not have offspring. So we get back to the whole idea that this is grounded in the concept of child sacrifice. And if we, and we have to just keep getting back to that. You know, and that again goes back to it is, it truly is an issue of the heart. It, it is a heart issue. And, um, of course, like I said, it's a, a gospel issue, but it's a heart issue. And, you know, and it's hard for me to hear. And, and I have heard it out of the mouths of those that looked me dead in the eye and, and said it. Um, it's hard for me to hear those that say, yes, I know it's a child, but it's one worth sacrificing or it's, I should have the right to make that decision. Um, I think a lot of that comes from a perspective of still not being fully informed, still not really thinking about what are the ramifications and what are you really saying? And I think the, the comparison of a one-year-old versus those that are uh, in the womb is a very good comparison because it helps bring to light what is being said. And I think that is very important. And, and part of what we're doing in pregnancy help and part of what pastors and those listening to this podcast that are engaging their local pastors have the opportunity to do is to bring those things that are in the dark, those things that have been convoluted by um, catchy catchphrases that Planned Parenthood came up with years ago that are still around today, even though they might not be the ones using them, to dehumanize the unborn, uh, to bring into the light the truth about it. And you hit on all the things uh, that I think the core things that are, are important, human rights, talking about human rights. And the thing is, though, is it's important to recognize the humanity of the unborn. And then that goes to the personhood. Well, when does it become a person? When When is it alive? And that's that's what we hear argued so often. Well, when does life begin? And I look at science and, a, you know, a simple scientific definition is life it, it grows, develops and dies. And from the moment of conception, we know that growth and development um, is moving so quickly. I, I read a statistic one time that said if we grew outside the womb for nine months at the rate that we did inside the room, we would be like the size of like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters at After nine months old. I feel like I've grown at about that rate. Yeah. Um, well, I think a lot of us definitely have the roles. Um, but that being said, but you know, the growth is, so you can't deny the development and the growth and obviously life can end. So those that want to say, follow the science, follow the science. I say, yes, let's do it. Do it. Let's follow the science. They um, don't want to follow the science. Um, what they, they want don't. is they want to express and, uh, and achieve their will. Mm-hmm. And I, I find it interesting. You mentioned one of the slogans that Planned Parenthood used to use. And of course it's on the back of a lot of their material, right? Every child, a wanted child. What I find interesting about that phrase is if they're not wanted, are they still a child? Yes. yes right? they Every are. child, a wanted mm-hmm. child. So if they're not wanted, but they're still children. And I got news for you. Somebody wants those children. And you're right. People don't see the ramifications of their thought processes. Um, Gary M. Atkinson in an essay called The Morality of Abortion. I had the pleasure of actually meeting with and having lunch with Gary. He's a professor emeritus now. He's, he's uh, in retirement. Uh, at the end of his essay, he evaluates all the rationale provided for abortion on demand. And this professional philosopher concludes that if the arguments for abortion on demand actually justify abortion on demand, they are equally valid to justify involuntary euthanasia. And at the end of his essay, he says uh, that the rational person, they will reject abortion in self-defense. And we are now, what are we seeing? More and more movement toward euthanasia. Look at our neighbor to the north up in Canada. You know, we, they have the medical assistance in dying 
program up there that consistently gets expanded deeper and deeper in the coming year. You won't, you don't have to be terminally ill anymore. And they're going to open it up to people whose only malady is a mental illness. And they're talking about opening up to sufficiently mature minors. And all that means is that a judge is willing to rubber stamp your request. And so um, euthanasia is growing leaps and bounds and it doesn't take long. Look at, at what social media has done to people. Imagine how easy it would be to infiltrate social media and teach young people that their current lives are not worthy to be lived and just kill yourself. And people will start to believe mm-hmm. that is the answer to the problems I face. And what a, a horrible, horrible um, message that would be to send to young people that there are certain kinds of lives not worth living. So this is where you have this clear divide between the message of the gospel which is that you are a human being created in the image of God, and therefore you are of inestimable worth. And then you have the other side that says, you are nothing but a product of time plus chance plus matter, coming from nothing, going to nothing, and if your life is difficult, just end it now because it doesn't really matter. Those are the two visions we're giving to our young people today. And I'm telling you, our story, the story of the church, the story of the gospel, is so much more empowering, exciting, life-affirming than anything you're going to find out in the world. And I, I just, I, we've got to stop being so shy about sharing it. Absolutely. You know, and you mentioned message um, and messaging. And so something that you said as uh, you're sharing just a moment ago, you're talking about the phrase, every child a wanted child. But even if they're not wanted, the negative space of that, what is said there is, is still a child. It doesn't negate the fact that they're still a child. And a big part of this as we're talking, um, and, and something that I think definitely over the years has given me a lot more confidence and, um, empowered and, and emboldened me to speak up was just the common sense side of the issue. And I think about my, my husband is an artist and he has taught with me about how much harder it was when he was learning to paint to paint the negative space. Like you didn't actually paint like the subject, but it's doing everything behind it, all of the negative space. And I think that's, that's an issue that we're dealing with here. What he said is painting the negative space took so much more work. It took more time. It took more concentration and delving into. Um, and we have been, for a long time been focused on abortion. The negative space is what is, has been unsaid for decades that we now see, see coming to light being euthanasia. Um, being that just the, the lack of regard for human life, um, of those who are, um, changing reality and, and, um, you know, changing definitions and all those kinds of things, those that are just not recognizing human life. But when you don't address the negative space, when you don't address the ramifications of what the subject is, which has been for, you know, 50 years abortion, then some of those other things continue to develop in the background. And I think common sense is a really easy way to handle that and to ask those questions. Well, does it, does a child not being a wanted child and wanted being by their definition, not, not ours, but does a child being a wanted child in any way make it less of a child? Um, there's a syllogism that you often share that I love. Would you just, cause it's so good. It's so sweet to the point. And I think it, when you're going back talking about children, and, um, you know, and at what age, 
do they understand mathematics and what I, and those kinds of things? What I love about the syllogism that you share, it is something that no matter the age, I think everyone can get it. Would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. sure. Yeah. This uh, I would love to take credit for this, but Stephen Schwartz is the person who actually put this thing together. He's a philosopher, wrote a book, and uh, Scott Klusendorf has been instrumental in sharing this uh, nationwide. But it's just. Um, it is right. People think it's, it's the, the abortion issue is so terribly complex. There's no way I can possibly master it. You can in three simple sentences. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Almost everybody will just stipulate that that's true. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. This is a form of a syllogism, right? Just like the old uh, one you probably are familiar with, which is, you know, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal, right? It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And if we can agree that that's true, and then if I can prove to you that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, therefore abortion is wrong. Well, we just have done that just in the short period of time we've been together. I've proven to you that human life begins at conception, not only, uh, by the way, did I cite, uh, did I cite anything from the national right to life? No. I cited from an embryology textbook and from a pamphlet that was distributed by Planned Parenthood in 1951. I argued that so uh, so human life begins at conception and that does abortion kill that human life? Yeah. How do I know? Because Planned Parenthood told me in Plan Your Children for Health and Happiness. And they said abortion kills the life of a baby after it has begun. That's what they say. And if you have a living child in your body from the moment of conception, the only thing abortion can do is intentionally kill that child. So if it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being and abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, the only conclusion we can come to is that abortion is wrong. Um, people then try to shift ground, as you and I both know. They'll say, well, it's not like it's a person yet or anything. It's too young to be a person. And um, we don't have time to go into this in great detail uh, today, but I will simply point you toward the, uh, the research that's been done by Christopher Kayser. He has a wonderful book out um, called uh, The Ethics of Abortion. And in this book, he, he, he looks at all the times in human history where people have made that artificial divide between human persons and human non-persons. And he says every single time we have ever done it, contemporary examples are things like in Nazi Germany, where they did that to the Jews, or over in, uh, in, in ante, the antebellum South during the time of slavery. Every single time we've made that divide and said some human beings are persons and other human beings are not, he says 100% of the time it has been determined in hindsight that a moral catastrophe has taken place. So why in the world do we suddenly think we have it right now? When in the past the concept of child sacrifice became a, a loathsome idea throughout the West. But I got to tell you, evil ideas have a funny way of never staying down. They just keep popping their heads up in other areas. So it used to be, well, if your skin wasn't the right color, you weren't a, a person. When then we got rid of that and said, no, that's a terrible rationale. Oh, well, if you're Jewish, you're not a person. Oh, that's a terrible rationale. And we fought a world war over it. And now people are simply saying, uh, well, because you're too young, you're not a person. Or you're too small, you're not a person. And we suddenly think we got it right this time. I'm telling you, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people are going to look back on the United States as one of the most barbaric cultures on the face of the earth, along with all the other cultures that are out there intentionally putting their own children to death, which is one of the reasons why, you know, people talk about abortion. And when you use that word, a lot of people think, oh, you know, 
uh, medical treatment. No. When you think about abortion, think about intentional child killing. Because ultimately, that's what abortion is. Abortion happens when people get together to intentionally put a child to death. Okay. So, Mark, how do we get other Christian leaders, especially our pastors, those leading their local congregations, to start having the conversations that we're having in pregnancy help? How do we get more people to speak up for life alongside us? There's a few ways to make that happen, I think, but I think it needs to start with prayer. I think we need to be praying for our pastors. And and one of the things I think we really need to be praying about for our pastors is courage. You know, it's easy, I think, for a lot of people in the quietness of their own hearts to say certain things. But when you actually are standing up against a lot of pressure and opposition, for that, you need courage and boldness. So we need to be praying for courage and boldness and wisdom and discernment for our pastors. Secondly, I think we need to be willing to go out of our way to help our pastors And one of the things that I've been doing, we've been putting on these Contend for Life One Day conferences, and part of that is we we come in and we work with pastors, and I walk them through a lot of the kinds of material, and then some that we've been talking about this uh, in this podcast. So my job is to then equip the pastors. If you're afraid to speak because you don't know, I'm going to help you to know. If you're afraid to speak because you have abortion in your background, I'm going to show you how to find that healing and forgiveness you're looking for. So we train and equip pastors, and we give them the scientific, the moral, and the biblical knowledge necessary to be able to preach effectively and compassionately on this issue, right? A lot of pastors are afraid, I don't want to hurt my congregants. We want to show them how you're going to help your congregants and not hurt them. Um, secondly, we can come in and be willing to train their congregants the first time ourselves. So the second half of that one-day conference is a three-hour apologetics class. Not every pastor, not every church is willing to sit down for three hours. It's not a hard thing to do to break it up into three one-hour sessions, I caught a thing uh, at our at my own uh, church campus over the span of six weeks. They gave me an hour a week every six weeks to talk to our people. And so um, there are ways to do this. How often does this need to happen? At least once a year, because we always have new people coming into that uh, age group that turns them into targets. So we've got to be able to help them to, to understand that. I mean, how often do you preach the gospel? Just once? Oh, I preached about it four years ago. No, you keep bringing it up because people keep coming in and they keep needing it. How often do we need to be impressing upon our people the sanctity of human life, I think intentionally, at least once a year, and then peripherally throughout the year. And every time you come across a scripture passage that talks about things like mothers, fathers, uh, children, uh, uh, you know, um, murder, idolatry, these are all times when we we could be talking about this. Um, I think back in the book of Proverbs to uh, the writer of Proverbs addressing the young man who's finding his way into adultery. And you'll notice if you look carefully at that passage, there are seven different times that kid could have stopped before he fell all the way in. We need to recognize we have people in our congregation at various places along that path. And we need to be yelling stop all along the way to keep them from taking that final step that ends the life of an unborn child. And and as we talked about earlier, uh, Tracy, if the church doesn't do it, I mean, who is going to do it? So at these sessions, a lot of times I'll ask the pastors, and I tell them this is the audience participation part. So you listening to the podcast, feel free to speak along to your to your radio or to your device. If we will not teach people about the sanctity of human life and what abortion does to the bodies of unborn children and in the lives of the men, the women, and the and the doctors who take part in abortion, if we don't speak up about it, do you think that the federal government is going to step in and they're going to teach our people about the sanctity of human life? Okay. No. 
Do you think that the medical community is going to step in? And I have news for you. ACOG, right, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, they are firmly in the camp of the abortionists. So at least, now I don't think that that's true about their membership as a whole, but their official voice, that's the official voice. So they're not going to do it. Do you think that the uh, public educational establishment in America is going to do it? And I make the pastors say it, and they do. No, they're not going to do it. And do you think that mass media and social media, you know, Hollywood and Facebook and all these other tech titans, do you think they're going to do it? And the answer is no, they, they, they won't do it. So the bottom line is, if we will not speak up for the lives of our unborn neighbors, if then that's, by the way, that is the definition, I would say, of loving your neighbor as yourself is to speak up for them when they're being carted off to slaughter. If we won't do it, who will? And the answer is, if we don't do it, no one will. And so it falls to us to lead the way and teach people the truth. And like I said, we've got all the scientific and moral and in the church biblical evidence in order to be able to do this very effectively, so we ought not be shy about doing it. Um, because it not only saves the lives of our unborn neighbors, but it protects the souls of the men and the women in our churches. And I think that can spread out into a community and help to make us a more life-affirming nation. Absolutely. And so as we get close to wrapping up, um, some of the things I want to focus on is that it is so important as pregnancy help leaders to recognize that we are offering our local congregations um, and pastors um, expertise. We are a special, we are part of the church. We are the church. We're staffed by the church. And we are offering a very specialized mission within our community. And so when we are going, I think it's important to, it, a lot of times pastors, um, as you mentioned, Mark, you know, have people coming, going, let me speak about this. Let me talk about this topic. Let me talk about this topic. And ours is very uniquely different in that if we are not able to speak about the right to life, there are people that will definitely lose, lose their lives in yeah. the days to come that otherwise might not if someone knew the full truth. So it's important that when we go to pastors, we are going giving. We yes. are not going and asking. We're not going saying, pastor, you know, um, and don't get me wrong. There's a time for asking to be put in the missions budget and everything else. But really what we're talking about today is getting your foot in the door with those that you don't Um taking on new territory and expanding the footprint of your organization. And it's so important to understand to go be a giver. Take your subject matter expertise to them. Maybe they believe um, and absolutely affirm what you're doing. You can offer to speak. You can speak at during sermons. You can speak on Sundays, on Wednesday nights. But it might be a small group. It might be youth group. It might be the women's uh, a Bible study. Um, I've gone and spoken at vacation Bible schools because you can take our message and you can make it a message for three, four and five year olds. And you you know what? Planned Parenthood is getting in there when they're like five year old and years old in kindergarten. We should be getting in there, too. We have the opportunity to equip them. Something that I used to do often is I would just put together a really simplistic sermon. Um, that was timely talking about what was going on, but also the right to life. And I would just share it and I would tell pastors, you know, if you invite me to come speak, this is sort of what my subject is going to be about this year. So they knew ahead of time. It gave them a lot of comfort mm-hmm. knowing coming in, but also it empowered them to be able to take those notes and to use them in their own sermons. And it made things a little bit easier because as you mentioned before, 
pastors are studying like everything. They're trying to be responsive to every issue out there. And they're like, and I say this with the utmost respect, they're like the general practitioners. If, if, you know, Christian leaders were medical leaders, they're like the general practitioners. You have to know so much about everything rather than being that one doctor that just focuses on one thing and is very finite and you become an absolute expert in it and you're at the top of your field. That's really great. And that's needed, especially when you need that kind of service or surgery. But that general practitioner is the one that gets you there. And so it's so important to understand that they have a lot on their plates. Yep. We can also engage them. Uh, some might not be ready for you to come in. You know what? That's okay. Would they be willing, if they're supportive of the mission, to do a baby bottle boomerang or maybe have a sponsor a table at the banquet? Come to the event. Be at the Walk for Life. Maybe I used to ask pastors, would you come at the Walk for Life and do the the, the blessing of the walk? And there were pastors that I otherwise couldn't get to the walk previously, but if I invited them to come and join us in a way to be involved in the movement, they were like, yes, absolutely, I'll be there. And guess what? Then the next year, you see them back again. And, and I, of course, they were invited, but they weren't invited to do something specific. And then a couple of years later, I'm speaking in their church. So that's important. Another thing that I think um, to consider and I, is share this podcast. Share the podcast um, because it's very important that people understand and our pastors understand we love our those pastors. We love those leaders. And there are those that are doing an amazing job of holding the banner of the sanctity of human life high. There are those that are doing it more quietly. And there are those that affirm it, but maybe haven't been equipped yet with the tools that they need in order to do it. And as subject matter experts, those that of us that have that very finite um, scope and focus, we have the opportunity to do that and to share that with them. So rather than going and always asking, we're going and we're offering. And something else to consider. Be is, willing um, always to start small. I like the fact you say you're willing to go and talk to life groups, Sunday school classes. Yes. Um, you can't always expect to walk in and, and get, you know, the, the big stage. But I'll tell you, as a precursor to almost all of this, those of us who are in pregnancy health organizations, I always tell directors, make a list of all of the pastors who pastor every one of your volunteer and staff member. And then every time something significant happens in the life of that volunteer, have somebody jot off a handwritten note to the pastor thanking the pastor for their ministry in the life of your volunteer. Mm -hmm. Because, see, they are involved in your in your ministry already. They just don't know it. And I think it's always a good idea to thank pastors. They don't get nearly enough mm-hmm. thank you cards, thank you letters from people. They always get complaints, right? I can't believe you painted the Narthanks that color, you know, and, and then horrible things. I'm, we're leaving the church because of that. Uh, they don't get enough support. So I think that's a good idea. I also tell folks all the time, um, especially if you are a pregnancy center or a clinic director within the sound of my voice, please don't thank your staff and volunteers at your banquet. I know that sounds heretical, but I'm going to tell you why. Because almost nobody at the banquet knows who they are. No, go to each and every one of the churches they're at. Talk to the pastor. Say, hey, can we recognize our volunteer from the platform of your church during announcements? I promise I won't take more than 60 seconds and prove it. 
And in that 60 seconds, you'll not only thank the volunteer and hand her a bouquet of of flowers, you're going to say, by the way, Pastor Smith, I also want to thank you for your work and your ministry in the life of our volunteer. There's no way she could be doing what she was doing if it wasn't for you. And so church, you need to know that, you know, Mary over here is an extension of the incredible ministry here at First Baptist, wherever we are. And, uh, and I think that's important. We recognize our volunteer. We help the people in a church know that they aren't any different than Mary. If Mary can do it, they probably could too. And we help the pastor recognize you aren't on the outside looking in. You are an integral part of, of all of the ministry at this church and the parachurch ministries associated with your church. And that kind of thing can, I think, really help um, bring us all together in a way that uh, that legitimately shows the body of Christ at work. I love that. And I love the fact that it acknowledges that we love the pastors. We love the leaders. And um, it's important to remember that even if that particular pastor isn't leading a pregnancy help center supporting church yet it doesn't mean that they're not actually already supporting pregnancy help by supporting their congregation and those in their church that are serving so with that as we acknowledge that we we love the body of christ we love the team that the lord has called us to be a part of to advance this mission forward and as we get ready to just wrap it up and hand it back over to christine in closing mark would you mind just praying a prayer of blessing over our pastors, those that are doing um, already out there and speaking up for the sanctity of human life and those that the Lord is equipping now to empower them to do it. Sure. Father in heaven, I just like to lift up uh, the body of Christ to you as we sit here in battle against forces of darkness that want to extinguish the lives of these little children that you've created. I lift up our pastors who are themselves, Father, frequently just overwhelmed by an avalanche of information that comes their way. Uh, They feel uh, pressed on every side by the culture, by science, by education, by the government. Uh, Sometimes I I can understand that they would begin to feel like they're just never going to find their way to the surface. Father, I pray for our pastors that you will embolden them, strengthen them, encourage them, and help them to understand that uh, this, this battle is about eternal things. And there are only two eternal things on this planet. One is the word of God, and the other is other human beings. And so we need to press in your word, and then we need to stand in the gap to protect the lives of human beings. And that includes unborn children still in the wombs of their mothers, where they are being fearfully and wonderfully made by you. Father, I pray that you will... Um, help pastors to recognize the resources that they have in their area of pregnancy help organizations. I pray that you will give them the humility to know when they are in need. And I pray that you will give them the uh, the grace and mercy necessary uh, to just step out um, with, with courage, Father, to ask uh, for the help and then be willing to receive it. So, Father, I just uh, you know, pray for all those in the pregnancy help movement that they will stand at the ready to help. And I pray for all of those who are in church ministry that they will recognize us not as uh, competitors for money or for volunteers, but as extensions of their local ministry. Help us, Father, to do the good work of encouraging pastors to help them recognize that we are all part of one great spiritual battle and that we want to work together. We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Mark. And we're going to hand it back over to Christine uh, to wrap us up. 
All right. Thank you so much. Hey, Mark, tell us about your book, Contenders. Where can we find that? Um, I've got it. This will go into great detail about all the things that Tracy and I have been talking about today. Um, the book is called Contenders, A Churchwide Strategy to Unmask Abortion, Defeat Its Advocates, Empower Christians, and Change the World. But if you just go to Amazon or to Books a Million or to Barnes & Noble or anywhere you get your books and just type in the word Contenders and Mark Newman, spell my name with a C, M-A-R-C, uh, it should pop right up. Um, this is a book that is designed to equip people in the church who are messengers. So if whether you are currently a messenger or you'd like to become a messenger, it will not only teach you all of the arguments that you need to make, it will teach you how to craft messages to be able um, to deliver to people in small groups, Sunday school classes, the very kinds of things Tracy and I have just been talking about. And if you want to take it further out in the public sphere, and it will show you the next steps that we need to engage in in order to create campuses that value life, but also which influence our communities to make uh, make our communities life affirming. Because I honestly believe this is, uh, I'm working on a, a follow-up right now, a book called Pivot. Um, I, I believe this is going to be a regional battle, not a state-by-state battle. And so the more voices we have that are adequately equipped, the better off we are. So the book is Contenders, and you can pick it up anywhere you can pick up a book. Thanks, Mark. Highly recommend that book. And as Tracy mentioned, share this podcast. Let's get the word out. I know we're publishing this in time for you to help prepare for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. But if you're listening to this months later, years later, whenever you happen to come upon this episode, it's a good time to be talking about life issues. So um, I hope that conversation keeps going year round. And I hope that you feel a little more equipped and are taking good notes and are ready to have those conversations in your churches and in your communities. So uh, with that, um, thanks for listening to this episode of the Pregnancy Help Podcast.